Welcome to another episode of Exit Point. This episode, we talked to Will Mitchell, who is a base jumper developing a reputation for opening short start wingsuit base jumps and some spicy lines in the US. He also has a very analytical approach and has been putting a lot of thought into challenging the conventional wisdom of base. So without further ado, let's get Will on the track. I want to ask you right away, because I was looking at your Instagram and uh, there's a section that's called base science in there. And yeah. uh, this is like one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you on the podcast is because this kind of stuff is what I've been hearing about you. So please tell me. So for people that may not know what I'm talking about here, there's a section in his Instagram page where he's got extended risers on one side and there's not a whole lot of explanation, but like I can just assume that you're with some questions that you're trying to see if actual body position matters or not. What, uh, tell me about yeah. this, this experiment. Well, yeah, the, I mean, base science was kind of a joke name, but yeah, I mean, that's the idea is to do some actual testing on some of the stuff that, um, that Tim, <clears throat> yeah. In, the, in that case, the, the left riser was seven inches longer than the other. And I took a poll of like, what would happen on a slider down opening, you know? And I think over half the people thought it would cause some kind of heading issues, you know, even like really experienced people at the bridge, you know, who get paid to teach people how to base jump thought that it would have some big effect. And my hypothesis that was <clears throat> that it wouldn't have any effect on the heading at all. And it didn't seem to, you know, we did like maybe just 12 jumps with it, but, um, yeah, that was one of the fun ones. We've done some additional stuff as well that ha I haven't just, I haven't put out yet. You know, I haven't had the time to, and I want to go back to the bridge and do additional testing as well before I like really put out um, findings, you know, as, as you might say. But I think we've seen a lot of really cool stuff that kind of like goes against some of the myths that, well, I say myths, but like, maybe some of the things that people believe about base jumping. Yeah. The common um, wisdoms. Yeah. So before we get into all of the common wisdoms, just real quick, uh, what, uh, led to your hypothesis that this was like the offset risers would not affect heading. What was the reasoning there? Um, because for a slider down opening, the heading is set by the, the way the canopy is the bulk of the canopy is facing at line tension. If that makes sense. So like typically if the pack job comes out and spins like 90, as soon as you weight the lines, that heading is the heading that it's going to open no matter what else you do. Um, <clears throat> and that's to me, it's like, yeah, it's a, a huge seven cell canopy with like low aspect ratio and and like lines that stretch. So having them offset by just a little bit immediately evens out when you put weight on them. And like, if you think about it, if you try to like harness turn a base canopy, it doesn't really move that much. You know, if you're just flying a base canopy and you lean way to one side, it doesn't have that much of an effect. So why would it in the opening, you know, and how would it immediately cause that canopy to 
to whip like 90 or 180 just by putting like a little bit of harness input in. And that's not to say body position doesn't have a, an effect, just that like that type of, of um, body position doesn't, you know, like if you're, if your body position is sideways, when the, when the canopy comes out, it's obviously going to have an effect on the way the, the pack job moves, but simply like dipping a, a hip or a shoulder, I don't think has any, any effect at all. Wow. Yeah, that is definitely conventional wisdom. So what I'm thinking here then based off what you're saying that I guess it would be yaw, right? Yaw position of your body on exit is more important for heading, heading performance than actual like your shoulders in a, um, in a roll. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, uh, I'm not sure I exactly understand the question, but yeah, basically when the canopy is coming out of the container, if it's influenced at all, if by like a, a spin or like some kind of off head, off axis body position, then yes, it definitely has a, a big effect. But if you're like flat and stable, when the canopy comes out, then what happens after that has no effect on the heading, you know? Okay. I mean, that's, that's like kind of what I believe. Obviously <clears throat> I want to go back and do additional testing, you know, and get good footage. And that's the thing is like, we have the technology now to do like slow motion video and actually see exactly what's happening, which is why in the past, like no one knew exactly people had like good hypotheses or like theories about what was happening, but you couldn't tell it all happened so fast, you know? Right. So then if I'm understanding you correctly, it's really the direction your torso is facing or the direction that your pack is facing that's more important than uh, your body position after the pack job lifts off the container. Um, yeah, that's like one aspect of it. Um, <clears throat> obviously, there's other factors that play into heading on slider down jumps, obviously, like wind, the wind uh, effect on the on the pack job as it's like until it hits line tension, um, <clears throat> different ways you can pack. Um, like if it, yeah, I mean, it's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. Well, that, let's, before we get into like what may cause an off heading, which could be like, you know, a ton of different things. Uh, why don't we, uh, roll through the list of things that you've kind of disqualified a le at least a little bit, uh, by doing some of this, uh, base science testing. What were some of the other things that you went through? Cause I noticed that there's several other videos on there. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I don't know what, what would you guys say has an effect? Well, one, one of the things we tested was like how you dress the center cell and where the, the bridle like comes out of the pack job. And we did a bunch of ones where we kind of just like didn't pull it out nicely and left it tucked inside the middle. It didn't have too much of an effect, but if you took it and actually put it obviously underneath like one of the ears, like way out to the side and then up above, it will like pull the pack job up and give it a, a nice, um, just like spinning momentum as it, as it lifts off and has a huge effect. We didn't see too much just like having it kind of sloppy, but still in the middle because as soon as you get the snatch on the, have a snatch force of the pilot shooting the bridle pulling on it, it kind of like straightens itself out pretty quickly. Um, I'm trying to think what else did we test? Uh, yeah, there's a off the top of my head. I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, there were a couple of uh, static line jumps on there where you're jumping offset from the static line, and that didn't oh, seem yeah. to do anything, at least in the videos that you posted. 
Um, we only got to do a few jumps on that one. It's something I want to do additional testing on, but I was offset by maybe five feet and it didn't seem to have much of an effect, but then I extended all the way out to the end, like as much as you could be offset. Someone was like holding the pilot chute and I walked all the way till my pins were about to pop and then jumped. And I did get a, a an off heading at like a 90. But that's it seemed much. like within a few feet of offset, it's not going to have much of an effect. But that's on the list to to test next time. How about this? Uh, this is one that I'm particularly interested in that uh, I know that you've been doing a little bit more testing on, which is the, the primary stow and uh, something that is kind of hotly debated. You know, people are going to no stowing their um, their lines, uh, some of them with one wrap around the line, some with double, some with different rubber bands. Uh, and I know that you, I think you've tried almost all of these. What have you found? And what was the process by which you've, you've tested? Yeah, so I'll just go ahead and say, I think, yeah, uh, it's really important to have one. Everyone knows this, like slider up jumping. It seems like that's just people, all, all people use them, but slider down people. Some people think it's like, has no effect. It doesn't do anything, or it could potentially cause like a negative effect to have a double wrapped primary stow. I think it's really important to use one for all jumps that you do. And be, because it does, it does a few things like it keeps that bulk of the canopy all together. You know, if, if you imagine like where the line what it's holding it's basically like holding all the a-line attachment points and like the whole canopy basically kind of in a in a compact um you know the way that you pack it in a little package just so that because <clears throat> the more the longer delay you take the more wind you have hitting it and it's going to want to inflate the canopy early so it's like could it's preventing like the um an out of sequence deployment where the the canopy would begin to inflate and oftentimes unevenly, you know, like it's going to, let's say probably a stabilizer is going to catch wind, begin to inflate and then come out the side of the pack job and cause the lines to unstow unevenly. The, Cause now you have the lines coming out of the, but the like both ends of the tail pocket at the same time and up to, and sometimes it's like as much as two or three feet of lines coming out, like from the, like the A-line attachment points down to the tail pocket. And so you have that inflating and it can cause heading issues as well. So it will like pull the pack job as it's inflating, you know? Um, so you, it just kind of causes additional chaos that you don't need. And um, out of sequence so yeah. openings can be the root cause of all things bad in parachute openings, right? Exactly. So that's an interesting one because like the previous generation has pretty much said that one uh, all across the line, like, you know, an out of sequence deployment with slacked lines can lead to a whole ton of malfunctions. And yet our generation has like kind of skewed away from that conventional wisdom without any real, like, you know, proof saying what exactly, like what was the advantage supposed to be of taking off the primary still? Uh, I've heard a few theories about it and none that have been that convincing to me. They used to talk about this pivot point thing. Uh, that's what I've heard as well. Yeah. I don't think it, it makes any sense or at least Can you no explain, one explain that real it. quick. 
No, because I haven't. No one's explained it to me <laughs> or, in a way. Or that like makes explain any sense. like what the the reasoning was. <laughs> I guess the concept is that it would like uh, cause off heading openings, you know, because uh, some kind of tension is happening, like in that in the middle of the canopy, causing it to have an axis about which it will spin. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not ready to totally discredit it. Uh, I always use a, a primary stow, someone that I really respect. Um, Mario Richard was like saying that, that he did not use one because he thought it was a pivot point And that was derived from asymmetrical inflation before the primary stow break, causing it to rotate. Um, I've never actually witnessed that or have any strong opinion one way uh, or against that, but I've heard too many, I mean, we talked about this earlier about how there's so much science missing in this sort of domain that most of what we're talking about comes from intuition and our own personal experience. So um, when people have different experiences, I'm not ready to completely discredit it. But what I like about what you're doing is you're spending a lot of time observing at the bridge, taking these slow motion videos and and also doing testing, which is uh, uh, stuff that uh, I'm not seeing a whole lot of. So, yeah, I'm going to lean towards what you're saying and, and take that with uh, more weight. Yeah, and it's, it's difficult. Yeah, Will, to are you ready to discredit these? <laughs> not quite yet, but uh, it's something that we're actively working on. And we're going to put something out uh, soon, soon-ish, hopefully, with like um, – detailed analysis and video as well you know it's difficult to explain awesome. exactly on a podcast you know sure um but yeah i would say um once that comes out then hopefully it will at least um we'll get some good discussion going at least you know <clears throat> and base jumping what i found is like it's you can't you can't uh convince someone of of something like this you know because up until now there hasn't been good video evidence so it's just like what you say versus what they say and what they believe you know and like you said most of most people it's like it's just what they've been taught from someone that they really respect you know and i think like um some of the some of the old old guys like did a lot of jumping with no stove because they thought it was better you know and that's what they taught people that they were mentoring so it's just been passed down and that's just what they've been doing and it and it actually like, and it works. That's the thing is like a good friend of mine, like doesn't use one and she has a lot of slider down jumps and she's like, well, I've never had an issue. You know, it, it, it works every time. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, um, it's like you, the actual effect might be that you have like a 5% chance of like maybe a little bit of an off handing opening or like a 0.5% chance of like, a, a line over or tension knot or something, you know, it would be less than that. But anyway, it's like, it's difficult to, to say exactly how much it would help. And on like static line jumps or, or um, like static line PCA type jumps, I don't think it matters one way or the other, you know, because you don't really have that, the wind to like inflate the canopy. So in that case, it's the same, but the, the longer delay you, you take the the bigger effect that it has, you know, like nobody would jump slider up with no primary stow. Yeah. You wouldn't skydive with a canopy with no D bag and no stows at all. Would you, you know, definitely not. Like, yeah. I, I wanted to 
touch on what you said about your friend saying that nothing is that's always worked. I, I always have like these like flashing red lights whenever I say that or I hear somebody say that because what is that a data point of like even if you have one time where it goes wrong and it's like one in 1000 for me that's still not you know even if you have 3000 jumps like you know you have a couple of those and it's still that's not good enough for me you know like and that's not really good enough in any sort of safety standard for any other industry um i'm not saying she's wrong and uh, for me i just always like that's that, that takes a moment of pause to be like wait a second okay like my my own personal data isn't good enough it's not large enough to, to make a, a real solid judgment on if this is working or not yeah, nobody, not even like the highest jump number people in our community have any kind of jump numbers that are statistically significant enough to say like, well, in my experience, this isn't a problem. Right. And it's it gets thrown out a lot, you know, like even people with like 200, 300, 400, whatever, like that's, that's always been fine. You know, okay, well, yeah. That's a good a, example of that. It's like the debate that's going on now with the slider gates, like or, uh, tape gates um, with slider up jumping, you know, if they call, if they help with tension knots or if they cause tension knots, you know, I saw a post on Facebook of someone like a really experienced saying, no, slider gate definitely causes tension knots. You shouldn't use one. And then like equally experienced people being like, no, it, it definitely helps. You should use it. You know? And by the way, we're about to talk to uh, Matt Gerdes and Will Kiddo about the research that they've done into um, uh, tension knots. And it, it seems to be a different thing that's affecting those, not the the slider gate, but uh, more on that later. So uh, real quick, back to the uh, primary stow. Uh, so far, it seems that uh, your recommendation is to use a double-wrapped primary stow uh, to avoid an out-of-sequence deployment, which can cause a couple of different issues, um, while you have nothing to uh, totally discredit um, using no primary stow. I've also heard you say something about using a loosely wrapped primary stow. And, and I've also seen you post something about that on birds, uh, maybe in uh, the near history. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, that's a good point. Using like a single uh, wrap stow or like a, a loose band is the same as not using one at all from what I've seen. I have video footage of, of that as well it has basically the same effect as none. You know, I think some people think it's like maybe the best of both, like it's going to help a bit, but, but yeah, it does nothing. So if you, if you feel like it's, it's helping you at all, I don't know. It's emotional. Also, it's emotionally supporting you. I saw you post, <laughs> uh, maybe just to go specifically into this at one point, you, uh, you noticed that somebody's primary stow band was elongating and like kind of snatching a couple of loose lines. Um, and, uh, you asked them like, Hey, it was this a double wrap or a single wrap. And they said single. Right. And you're like, well, that could have potentially caused, uh, some kind of issue here because like, it's, it's basically elongating and grabbing half of your slacked lines and the others, the other lines are kind of sliding right through. Uh, is that something that you've also caught on slow motion video? Mm. <clears throat> no, I don't have video of that, but yeah, it, it could potentially be worse than having no stow at all, because like you say, it will hold some of the lines, but not some of the others. But the, that post on Facebook was like, um, someone doing a, 
a jump, like a skydive with a base, uh, like a single parachute system, a terminal jump slick. And he had a line over and then they posted the video in slow motion of it, of it opening. And it was caused by, yeah, he, he had a, a primary stow that was either single or wrapped or like some kind of non-standard setup. And it, and it, um, yeah, it, it caused exactly that. Like the lines came out of the tail pocket from like the canopy side and the canopy got a lot of distance away from the tail pocket and the, it caused a line over, you know, I was able to see a still, a still of that happening. And yeah, I mean, that's a, that's like a terminal jump, but the effect is the, is the same. So moving forward, uh, you know, we've, we've touched on a couple of things that you're discrediting, um, or at least attempting <laughs> I, to, yeah, attempting I to, I wouldn't say, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. just, yeah. I want to get some good evidence and, and help. Yeah. I don't know. What are some of the other, uh, problems or questions that you're working on currently? I would have to pull up my list of them, but I've got a, I've got a document that I can send you. It's got maybe. 20 things on it. And it's cool. Cause a lot of people have sent me good ideas of things to test. And, um, I want to go back to the bridge with a few people and, and test them specifically with, uh, with the slow motion footage, but, uh, I don't have a list. Okay. Well, uh, re- uh rather than a list, maybe uh, you can talk us through the process that you're using to test some of these things. And if, if you have any kind of like universality to the approach to intaking a problem and then uh, trying to test for it, uh, we're super interested because I think it's something that all of us should be doing uh, rather than just you know taking what we've heard from the previous generations as gospel. Well, it's just the basic like scientific style method. You know, you have a, a hypothesis and then you go and test it and <clears throat> and then see if it lines up with the hypothesis and then if it does or doesn't, you change one thing at a time and see what effect it, it has. It's difficult to do in base jumping because, uh, like you, you, for a lot of the stuff you have to get good, like high quality video of what's happening and that's difficult to do. And, uh, and there's so much like anecdotal evidence or anecdotal stuff out there, you know, people just saying like, Oh, well I had a tension knot and I was using X canopy. So that canopy sucks. You know, it's like, that's uh, meaningless, you know, <laughs> um, but I, I'm just looking for like solid stuff that can apply to all jumping to any equipment, you know, and um, I think we, we can do that. And I, it's really cool. I think what, what, what you said, Matt and, and Will, those guys have done some stuff like the, like the, the wind tunnel testing with um, the wingsuits and the, and the pilot shoots was all really cool, you know, stuff like that. I, I'm a big fan of there's also something to be said for presenting preliminary evidence too, right? I mean, we're in a life and death activity here, even if you're not completely discrediting, you know, what is the convention presenting data that goes against convention to like make people think more critically about what they assume is the right way seems to be beneficial all around. Wouldn't you both agree? Yeah. I mean, obviously, Will, you do because you're out there doing it. But um, yeah, I think it's good to take all these things with a grain of salt and and be critical of what we think is the convention because we're still in a very, you know, very immature stage in our development as a sport. 
Yeah, I like to think of it, or at least uh, tell people uh, that are uh, progressing alongside me uh, that uh, we have no space for trust in the sport and that it should go from faith to knowledge, basically. And we should try and do everything we can to like not have to trust a piece of information. So like, you know, if I tell you like, this is the best way I know how to do this, like give me full faith and credit that I'm not like just outright lying to you, but you know, then don't just go trust that piece of information is like, Oh, well, Matt said that this was the best way. Like go and and try your best to uh, figure out whether that is true or not, you know, go from faith to like testing the theory and hopefully eventually to something that like resembles knowledge. <laughs> well, we're talking about primary stoves. Uh, the frequent discussion that comes up is how long. Um, what um, do you have any thoughts on that? Will how, how long, long the primary stove is? Like as you take uh, a bite of the oh, lines, the how long it? should it? How long should it be? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, obviously you want all the lines to be held by the stove. Um, I haven't done much testing on that or know much about it, actually. I, I would imagine that it could be too long and it, it it could be too short as well. But I mean, mine is usually just like an inch and a half to two inches long past the, the band. But I... I that's something to, I'll add that to my list. <laughs> cool. Moving on to uh, some other parts of the list. Uh, do you have anything that's off the top of your head? Like, um, well, I just pulled up surprising. that list now so I can, I can look. Um, I think some people found that that's the thing with the, with the riser is really surprising, you know, having that left one being long and it, um, besides that, um, well, some things that like, people talk about but i don't quite understand or haven't seen good evidence about is like the center cell strip have you guys heard of that or know what it is yeah yeah if you have too hard of an opening and all of a sudden like your canopy gets like split in half basically by uh the force of you falling versus the force of the pilot chute acting on the top skin and can um like basically peel the top skin off of the uh, the ribs is that what we're talking about mm-hmm yeah, so I've heard I've heard of that. I mean, never I, I seen think it. So, but I mean, like that's just the way that all base canopies open. They only have a single point of attachment. The canopy is only lifted off by by that one point. So, every single opening is basically kind of like that, you know. Um, so I don't know if I quite understand it, you know. But they just start, they were doing the multi multi point attachments on top to like kind of help with that, you know, back oh, in the right. day. But it seems like they moved away from that as well but um also like line dump i think people talk about this a lot and think it happens a lot but i i haven't seen it you know and i i don't i've spent a lot of time looking at these openings and thinking about it and um i'm having i have a hard time like seeing exactly how it would happen you know if definitely if somebody had like velcro that was basically useless like it, it didn't hold at all it could happen, but I think in most cases it's not actually happening. Like maybe when people think it is, can we, um, can we rewind for a second? Because I think a lot of people may not pick up what you guys were talking about before then, uh, how, what is causing 
the the center cell to be uh, inflated. I think in oh the center cell simplistic part. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's can we break that down a little bit more simply, please? Sure. Um, so essentially, the the problem um, could be that if you like, let's say that you use too huge of a pilot shoot and way too deep of a delay, like you're doing a 48, you know, with a five second, you know, slider off delay, right? Um, What has been proposed is that the force of uh, the pilot chute acting on the top skin uh, could peel it away uh, from its like, from its structure, you know, basically making, you know, just the open shoe type of thing, which like, Oh, okay. Tearing your, your so center like cell off of the ribs. Of your, of your center cell. And if I'm hearing Will correctly, he's basically saying like, yeah, I mean, it'll open faster, but like that's what happens with every opening. Like it's not like the, the pilot chute continues to anchor in the air. Like it pulls the canopy out and then, you know, the opening uh, goes through the next pieces of sequence. So like it's it's not like it's fixed in place. Right, Will? I mean, my point with it is like, I, it's something that people say a lot and I, I don't quite understand exactly what people mean when they say it. And I think maybe everyone has a different definition of what it is. Like you kind of mentioned that it, it would cause some damage to the canopy potentially. I don't think that that's what most people mean when they say that, you know? Um, but it's just one of those things that, yeah, I don't. I don't quite it, understand. It gets no one's explained a lot it to me without any any data behind it. Um, I'm kind of curious now that you're sitting with that list. Like, what are some of the <laughs> like? You, there's probably a couple on that list where you're most excited about to tackle. Like, maybe you can tell us without yeah. divulging. Yeah, any. we have some stuff on like methods of packing the pilot chute and and. Um, for stowed or handheld jumps. I'm just looking at it now. Um, the, obviously the offset, um, like anchor point for static line is a big one that we want to test, um, stuff on. And, and like you mentioned, Matt, like having a, an oversized pilot shoot, how much of an effect does it actually have? Here's a question for you. If you have a, a really oversized pilot shoot, is it going to cause a hard opening and, and how? Yeah. I mean, as far as I'm aware, uh, the speed and like the hardness of the opening is based on air coming into, uh, the, the cells, not based on the pilot shoot. Like the pilot shoot has an effect of snatching out the canopy either, you know, faster or slower, but most of the the weight that you feel in the the opening is is based on how much like air is being you know forced into the cells, which gets the the canopy to actually inflate uh, either faster or slower. So, like more of the effect of like how hard the opening is, like how deep the delay you took, versus like what uh, size pilot shoot you have on. Is opening speed and st- strength of opening like hard versus soft? synonymous i think people use yeah people yeah use those, those synonymously yeah for sure but it's what you said matt just now is like i that's another thing i think people have like a little bit of a misconception on especially for slider down openings when you said like 
the air is coming into the cells and like inflating the canopy in the opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's something else that's on the list too, is like what you do with a nose on slider down openings, how much of an effect it has. Cause you know, as you've seen, I guess is like people have a lot of different ways that they fold the nose, you know, for, for slider down openings and what they think it does. Yeah. And I think it has like maybe not the effect that not as much of an effect as people think. And it doesn't quite, um, do what people think in the openings. Like I think people imagine sometimes maybe that like the, the wind comes in the nose of the canopy and like, that's what opens it. It's like, no, the bottom skin expansion is like what slows you down and what stops you. And the canopy is mostly like not inflated at that point, you know, especially if you don't have vents on the bottom of the canopy, it's like the inflation typically happens way after that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, bottom skin inflation is it like uh, starts to, you know, actually turn into a giant jag wall is much more of an effect than would be the the drag that you're seeing off of a 48-inch pilot shoot, you know. So uh, that and then um, also, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like the um, the dressing of the nose seems to make a negligible effect. The only time that I've ever seen dressing of the nose really uh add to like uh, a reduction of the like the weight that i feel during the opening is when um i was shown this method in in crew jumping where like you you literally like s fold the uh the nose the like outer nose pieces and then rubber band them to the uh the center a lines so that like basically the like two halves of the canopy can't expand until like it drags through the air for you know, a substantial amount of time. I should add though that what, yeah, I meant for like slider down openings. It doesn't, uh, for slider up openings, it, it can have quite an, an effect what you do with the nose. So yeah, I was talking about slider down openings gotcha, in, that, gotcha. in that case, but yeah. Um, so oh, something else, a good one is that the tail first inflations, you guys know about that? Or Yeah. I've heard, heard that that yeah. leads to uh, off headings, which is why uh, a lot of uh, people have gone to, um, like the tail berry method. Uh, what, what did you, you find that? on that? Can you explain that method? What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, um, well, let's see, like this was back like, um, mid two thousands. I think the, the apex video that was, uh, most prominently used to teach packing had a methodology where you wrapped everything in the center tail, uh, so like the tail pocket was definitely on top of the pack job. And, and then aside from the nose, which was dressed on the other side of the pack job, uh, everything was wrapped in that center tail. And uh, the theory was uh, later that this could potentially cause off headings because as the pack job lifted off, uh, the tail pocket would be in free airspace and uh it could like whip around in some weird way and because like the tail pocket had such an amount of weight in it uh you know the tail pocket plus the lines uh, it could effectively change the heading of the entire pack job just by like one little whip and so uh, what people went to was uh, this tail berry method where uh, you would um, you know flake it as you would normally and then roll the outsides of the pack job into the middle and over the top of 
uh, the tail pocket in order to like bury it within the pack job. That way, like if it came out, uh, it would have to like take the rest of the canopy with it and hopefully symmetrically. Hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I think, um, so lately people have been talking about, yeah, this tail first inflation versus like the nose first inflation. And it's kind of like what the, how the canopy expands, you know, if you think about like an ideal opening, it's like no nose first, it kind of like folds out like a horseshoe versus like the opposite as like the tail inflating first and the nose kind of coming out last. And I think it is mostly, I think people think it's, um, tied to like the tailgate. People think, oh, the tailgate, uh, failed. So now I have a tail first inflation and I've seen that's not quite the case. <clears throat> it's, it's mostly tied to what you were just talking about, how you do the, the minimization folds and what you do with the tail. And, um, I don't know if I have enough like good evidence to say, well, like what's the, the best way to pack, but I'm kind of leaning one way, you know, not that where, it has, where are you leaning? Um, it's well, <clears throat> let's think about this. Like, uh, what I've seen is like, if you, I think people call it the Tilly fold. Is that a thing that you guys know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the Tilly fold it. was, uh, one side over about... the top asymmetrically. Yep. Yeah. Any of that style where you take the folds and put them on top of the tail pocket and the center cell, I think is like not as good, even though that's the way I've been packing for a long time. Uh, because what it does is like, as soon as the, the pack job is coming out, as when it's unfolding, those, those folds immediately just flop out into the wind. And a lot of times they'll come out, um, in front of the nose of the canopy. And so then you have the stabilizers catching wind and, and sometimes it blocks the nose as well. So that's what will affect like the way the canopy expands when you might see that tail first inflation as people. Oh, call okay. It. So we got Versus like, this, like, like reverse tacoing happening where it's like squeezing the nose. Exactly. It kind of, yep. And you, so you get like the stabilizers inflating funny too, and then combine that with no primary stow. And then you get like that, you start getting those out of sequence inflation type stuff versus having everything contained, like kind of how you might pack a, a reserve with the tail, uh, no, the center cell, like around everything, keeping it all, it keeps it all, uh, in place nicely until, uh, line tension is what I've seen. Okay. So, so have you seen the let's same just, thing? Wait, with, let's just, yeah. let's just be, uh, accurate, right? The Tilly fold doesn't necessarily mean that it's asymmetrical. It's that the reduction folds are on top of the, the tail pocket or the tail, right? So it doesn't I don't have know to exactly be the definition of it. I've seen it both ways, but I think yeah. in both cases, like those folds immediately flop out. And right. a lot of times they'll come all the way up in front of the nose of the canopy um, as you hit line tension. S super minor detail. I just wanted to make it clear that. that yeah, I don't know exactly. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, I, I'd be curious if you saw the same thing with the um, symmetrical version of that tailberry method, which uh, I started doing when I got um, my first uh, DPTX or DP. Uh, double pin uh, through loop uh, DPTL uh, rig and you had to do it that way in order to like uh, access the through channels for the through loops mm -hmm. um, oh, right. and then I just kind of kept doing it that way because it was like really neat 
uh, but uh, did you see the same thing with that the roll in method, like two rolls on each side uh, that meet in the center versus like completely folding the canopy over the top of the tail pocket, like you know, trifold book style? Um, I th- I'd have to check and get back to you, but I I want to say yes. It's maybe not to the same extent. Uh, I just thought of something. Let me add this yeah. just to, <laughs> just because uh, Please do. I, I, I believe that in like no wind conditions, if you know it's completely calm and you have like a good pack job and good body position on a slider down jump, there's like no reason you should ever have enough heading opening. Really? Yeah. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> so the the chaos theory that uh floats around uh, you you don't believe in it like you know there's a certain amount of chaos that just is apparent like happens and uh well eventually... i believe in um physics you know yeah. <laughs> i think there's a lot of things in play for sure and so, and most people so yeah like definitely the way you like container um uh, the container you have can play a factor. The way you fold the canopy into the container, like if you do it sloppy, if the container like holds, a, like if it doesn't let the canopy come out cleanly, you know, if, if some of it holds the canopy a little bit, it can cause a twist. But like assuming you have like a really good container, like a, the, um, that's going to open and let the, can- let the canopy come out cleanly, you know, and you have um, a body position that's not affecting the canopy as it comes out. And there's no wind like, yeah, I mean, pilots shoot oscillation is like, a th- it is a thing, but what I've seen is like, it doesn't affect heading that much. It, it can sometimes maybe add to something that's already happening a little bit, but by itself, I don't think it causes m- many heading issues at all. If any, wouldn't if that static line thing. testing that you're doing the offset static line counterpoint be a counterpoint to what you're saying right now? Cause that's basically it, what it, it, yeah, but not an oscillation because typically when <clears throat> on like a, a stow jump, you, the pilot shoot will be on one side and then go to the opposite side with right. the, with the PCA thing that you're like, that would be analogous to like a, a strong crosswind. Oh you know, uh, yeah. Okay. Pilot, yeah. Pilot okay. shoot's just being pulled to one side the whole time. Usually an oscillation is like it's, it moves one side to the opposite once or twice before the canopy like um opens plus uh you know if you tested walking out like four or five feet to one side and and jumping you know that's basically the same as you know a pilot shoot oscillating to one side that you know it's never gonna you know go all the full length of the bridle like over to you know one side or the other uh and so like you're basically mimicking uh the point uh, at which like the pilot shoot has effect on the pack job there. And if you've seen no like real significant off headings four to five feet over to the left, then it would stand a reason that like four to five feet over to the left or right during a pilot shoot oscillation would also have like minimal to no effect. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it though, it's like the, it, again, it's attached just on a single point on the canopy in the middle like just yeah. because it's oscillating to one side, it's not going to induce any like yaw uh, into the canopy body itself. 
you know, it's just going to pull the canopy material a little bit to one side. So that can be combined with like effects of, um, if you're, uh, if you're like tracking or like, or if you're, it's getting pulled out behind you and then off to the side as well, it can have an effect, but if it's pulling straight up off your back and then it like goes to the side a little bit, it's not going to do that much. It can't like put a yaw motion into the canopy to spin it, you know? So uh, I don't know. Just I mean, a that's a serious some... question. <laughs> uh, do you think that like the multi-line bridle attachment where it's like actually anchored to like one side of the, um, the center cell, would it have, have more of an effect in an off heading than if you just had it directly in the center? Uh, Cause then it has the opportunity to like pull like a little more fabric, like maybe negligible, mean. but like a little more. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Potentially, no one jumps those. That really, at least the yeah. four ones. I think they still have the two, but they're both on the center cell. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know if I believe much in like the, the science behind or the the idea behind those. You know, I think it might cause. <clears throat> you know how sometimes the pilot sh- or the tail pocket gets entangled with a bridle. That's like yep. another one that I want to look into a little bit because what I have seen is like a lot of times the tail pocket comes up and hit and touches the bridle. I would say it's like 15, 10% of slider down jumps is I would see that. And it's like a significant interaction. And I think that's what's instilling the Velcro. Some of the times when people land and they're like, Oh, I had lined up. It's like, no, it probably, that's what happened. Your tail pocket whipped up on the opening and went all the way around the bridle and then got whipped back off of it. You know, So, uh, Lo, where do you want to go from this point? You know, we've uh, covered a couple of the things um, that, uh, you know, Will's working on. I know that we wanted to talk to him about uh, wingsuiting and uh, how he approaches objects. Um, it also might Absolutely. be a good time to jump into, like, you know, why did he even do any of this? <laughs> like, Will, like, why? That was my why? next question, really, is, like, yeah. <laughs> what's, where's the motivation coming from and, and what is the why? Um, to jump or just for this no, like just space science to, to, type stuff? Yeah, to approach all of this scientifically, which not a whole lot of people do. You know, what's the what's the deal? And um, you, do you think this is something that everyone as a jumper should get into? Uh, I mean, yeah. I, so it's funny because that's like the the most feedback I get is about these slow motion videos that I do, and a lot of them I post is just like just for fun because I see some interesting stuff happening. You know. Um, so I think, but a lot of people that actually watch them and message me, they also see the same things that I'm seeing. They're like, Hey, have you noticed this? I think, you know, is this what's happening? Does this cause, you know, X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, that's awesome because I think like base jumping isn't that old, you know, we don't have that much and it's still developing. So I think it's, there's a long way to go. And, um, what initially got me into it was like, I, I, I was thinking like, Hey, does this, it was at the time when like lightweight canopies, uh, were just coming out kind of in base jumping. And it felt like some people thought uh, you get hard openings with ultralight material. And that's what I was hoping to test initially. And I was like, Oh, maybe I can see in slow motion. Would they expand fast? And I couldn't quite tell, you know, But luckily, yeah, it's been useful for other stuff as well. 
Are you are you using a fancy camera or are you just using an iPhone? Curious what what kind of camera you're using. No, it's just a Sony. Um, like a it's like an eight hundred dollar camera. It doesn't have interchangeable lenses at all. I can send up a link to anybody who wants it. People ask me sometimes, and I always tell them. I'm hoping I'll see like people like buy one and start using it because you can find one for maybe five hundred bucks now. But now you need like a quite a good zoom lens to see this stuff. You can't do it with a phone. Um, there's a new one out though, the the Wave, I think is what it's called. But it's like a ten thousand dollar body. But it would be like the next level up because you can because mine it only does two second clips, which just happens to be okay for what I'm doing. But right. this one it's like four K as long as you want. Like that's what the next step would be. I'm curious of all of the things that we think we know in base jumping, in your opinion, like what percentage of those are, are probably based in, in like solid fact and how many of them are, are we just kind of like taking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> taking at face value, but eventually probably going to find that they're not true. <laughs> oh, I have no idea. That's or like, give me an estimation on, on how much, you would feel comfortable saying that you know about base jumping? Uh, like I say, I'm not, I don't know. I'm just, um, I think you made a good point earlier. It's like, it's important to listen to people who have a lot of experience and to learn from them, you know, but then beyond that, you need to think for yourself is like the most important thing, you know? Um, that's kind of like the way I come at things just because like he's been jumping for 20 years and tells you that this is why it is. It's like, yeah, take that in. But then as you get experience, think back on that and be like, Hey, actually, does that make any sense? You know, just because he's been doing this a long time, doesn't always mean that he's infallible or, or just, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've found a lot of that. Uh, it's hard to, it's hard to differentiate, uh, between like what has happened to that person and why that thing has happened. You know, they, they go like, Oh, I've been jumping for 20 years and this is, uh, this is the thing that happens, you know, every time I open in this way, you know, and, uh, then they, they usually go farther into like, it's a question of like, why am I doing it this way? Or you should do it that way. Right. And so like, there's a causal thing attached to, um, the, what they've observed and it's been uh, difficult for me in my career, like separating that, like, maybe that is true. Like the person has observed, you know, that effect over that 20 year period, but they could be wrong on the why. And as like, we, uh, continue to update our techniques and the equipment updates and like the techniques and stuff that we're using change based on like us trying to get more radical, you know, the whys become much more important because people try and transfer them. Like, oh, why does that, why did that happen because of this? All right. So now in the future, as we're trying to learn how to do this new thing, we should, you know, do it this way because of this causal relationship that we've observed. And so like, that's, that's one piece that I, I, I totally agree with you. I think like, you know, we should intake all of the information from the past, but, you know, maybe not go so far as to say that. Like they know why that thing happened more like, all right, that guy's got 20 years of experience. And in that 20 years, he's observed this thing happening. Let's figure out maybe if that's still the case and why. 
One thing that I'm really interested in talking to you about, Will, is uh, this is totally uh, moving on to a different topic, but uh, how you assess wingsuit exits. Hmm. Oh, this is a good one. Yeah. How do I do it? Well, what, what we can <clears> do. Yeah. Sorry. Well, maybe I can make it a little bit easier for you on how to answer that is like, hmm. it, let's say you're out hiking, doing some recon, or maybe you're a paraglider pilot and you're like, Oh man, that cliff looks like something that would go. Are you, um, I mean, because where you are in the world and, and how the data collection begins, it can be much different. And then what tools you're using and, uh, what's, what's from a to Z Z being jumping off the cliff. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot goes into it. Um, sometimes it's like people sending me stuff they're like, Hey, this might be a jump. A lot of times I see a cliff, um, or like in the U S West, there's kind of only so many places you could jump, you know, it's, you can quickly narrow it down to like, Hey, these have big mountains and they have cliffs on them, you know? So then you kind of focus in. And in that case, now we have a lot of good tools. And one that I like a lot is it's kind of, new is the baseline uh, map. Have you guys looked at that much? The 3D map that's built into baseline? Not much, but I haven't been wingsuiting very much. Yeah, I have, but please explain. Yeah. Yeah, explain. Okay. So <clears throat> it really depends on the location because it's it's taking data from like, like a lot of different places. So sometimes you'll have super high resolution, like 3D images of Mountains, you know, let's take an example of, um, like, uh, salt, like, uh, Moab, you know, you could, um, pull up the map on it and man, uh, thanks to Kenny who who's done all this, man. Cause baseline completely changed the game for like wingsuiting, at least to me. Um, and this, he put a, he like built a, a way to shade, the cliffs, you know, you can, you can shade it so that you only see like vertical cliffs that you could like maybe base jump off of, but then you can do the shading so that it like, like a flyable slope and a wingsuit is yellow, you know, and like, if it's too flat, it's red. And like, so then you can quickly zoom in on a thing, like a, a place in Moab and be like, Hey, there's a whole bunch of cliffs and you could fly down them. So, and then you zoom in on that. And beyond that, you can use like the old school method of like a topo map, you know, those are really good for other places as well. When the, when that map wouldn't work, I've kind of built a skill of like being able to look at that 3d map and know, like if the cliff's big enough and almost immediately, if it's going to be a wingsuit jump or not, that's just based on using it a lot. Um, but with like, even an old school map, you can look at like the lines and see the out the elevations at the top of the cliff at the bottom. You can know how tall the cliff is. You can know the slope of the, the flight and then, based on this type of data, you can do a quick calculation of like the glide slope that you need to make it to an LZ, you know, and that's like the basics of it. Um, can I, can I um, ask a few more detailed questions about that? Cause I know yes. there's a lot of people interested in this, uh, that formula that you use. Um, so you're, you're taking the exit altitude and you're taking your landing altitude. Mm -hmm. What do you do with those two numbers? So, okay. That's going to give you the, the, uh, Y value. 
you need the X value. So you need the, the horizontal distance from the exit to the, to the landing. And then you just do a basic division to find the, the glide slope, you know, okay. How many feet, um, down is it to how many feet across? And that's like giving you the exit to landing. So you have to take into account, you can't be like, oh, it's like two to one to, to make it to the LZ. You have to take into account the, the start and the, and how high you have to open the parachute. You can't just be like, oh, I can fly my wingsuit at two to one. So it's good to go. And th so the higher the jump is, the less of an effect that has, but let's say like in Moab, you know, if the, the total height of the jump is 400 meters, you, you can't really use that formula too much. I mean, are you so, subtracting? Big... Sorry. Do you have like a, um, a general number that you subtract for your start arc and then your opening altitude? Um, I'd have to think, I mean, you could say to like 150 meters at the beginning and then however high you feel comfortable opening up at the end, you know, 150 meters again, what you could do though is like, look at a bunch of fly site, um, data and see like, Hey, when am I usually like actually flying? When am I, when am I beginning to glide at the slope, at the slope that I need to match and then go above that, take out that altitude and then just give yourself however much you want at the end, you know? Some people like and to open it a thousand feet. When you're doing yeah. that calculation of, uh, you know, your, let's say that the flight is two to one. And then you look at like previous flights and say like, all right, after how much altitude, um, after my start, uh, am I flying at two to one? Um, when you do that, are you, uh, taking information from the same area at the same time of year, or is it, uh, fair to grab information from like your European starts and then go like, all right, well, like I look good for Moab. Let me just, you know, cut copy there and, and we're good to go. Hmm. No, I mean, you should, I mean, ideally, yeah, it would be the exact same, um, variables for everything. That's not always the case. So then you take a bunch of different jumps with like, maybe one's a higher elevation, one's low, and then in different settings and then get a good idea of what you can do, you need a lot of data to, to make these decisions. Like, well, the thing is like, this is kind of an advanced question, I guess, you know, like beginner base jumpers or wingsuit pilots, like wouldn't need this that much. My advice to, to these people, because this is like the questions I get a lot is from like beginner to intermediate like wingsuit jumpers. They're not like going out and opening new exits. They just want to know like, how do I use a fly site? Because how do I use a laser? Because that's what people say. That's what people tell you to do, but where are they supposed to go to find that out? You know? Well, uh, give us some knowledge, man. Where should yeah, you go right to here. find that out? And yeah, uh, find out right here, motherfuckers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and what are the well, recommendations no, on uh... how to use those two tools? Because yeah, like a lot of people track a bunch of data on their fly site, but then they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to yeah, compile they do nothing it. And a lot of people it. have a laser, but they don't know what to point it at. And so exactly, uh, yeah, send it, dude. What do you What do you think? Well, yeah, we just had to figure it out kind of for ourselves, like, and the, like back in the day. But now I think you have the, the tools and the people out there and the knowledge to, to Top Gun Base is like a good place to start. There's a lot of good knowledge there. I've it's been a minute since I looked at it. I don't know how deeply it goes into using lasers and but like 
when it comes to flying a wingsuit and base, that's a good, tons of good knowledge. The book of base is another good uh, place to go just for like the basics. Um, yeah. Like on the podcast with, um, with Jeff, you know, he, people talking about micro micro met for like wingsuit base jumping, a good place to begin is the book of base. And you need to know like some of that stuff to be flying wingsuits in mountains. It like, it simplifies it down for base jumping. And then like with experience, you'll get more now, more knowledge. But when it comes down to like, how do I use a fly site to base jump? Um, initially you just jump with it like a lot when you, you so at the beginning you should be jumping off of cliffs that you don't need it. You don't need a laser. You don't, you don't need a fly site. You should be at a huge cliff. Um, but jumping the fly site on that and just getting data. What I tell people to do is be like, get 50 fly site files before you can actually start to use that data and, and make sense of what's actually happening. But when you get it, you also need to note like the conditions that day and the location so that in the, in a year or two years when you actually want to use it and make sense of it, you, you can, because that's important. Like the biggest effect on a wingsuit start, you know, is like a lot of people think, Oh, I need to be jumping X, Y, and Z suit, you know, because of whatever the biggest effect on like how fast you can fly, like the, like if you're talking about the feather challenge, you know, it's like, it's conditions, you know, it doesn't. So the feather challenge, just to to add some reference to that, it's uh, the farthest flown 200 meters down, 200 meters out, I believe. Is that right? Uh, It's just how, how much distance, how much horizontal distance you can do in the first 200 vertical. That's right. Okay, cool. Like that's not something I I do. I I think it's kind of silly because it's not a a challenge of skill at all. It's like who can jump in the best conditions is all it's telling you. Or the worst. Okay. I mean, I think Julian Mio uh has the the title and it's like one of the like nuking thermal day where no one would want to jump because it's just you're just bouncing all over the place. But for oh, the start, you know, you're like <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so for people Magic to be carpet posting ride. on on sky derby and say, Oh, I'm, I'm the best at starting my wingsuit fast. And it's like, no, uh, it's no, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's just what I think. So, uh, going back to like advice for the, the beginners, we've got, you know, grab a fly site, uh, do at least 50, which gets you a, a nice solid base rate for understanding something. Um, and then note the conditions and locations so that, you know what possibly the, the altitude, the air density was that day, if it was thermic or not. Um, and then you can start to, like, what, go into uh, building a little bit of margin over the next uh, more risky or dangerous. Um, exactly, yeah. So the baseline is a good tool for this because you can pull up all 50 flights and see them all side by side. Ideally, with each one, you would put also how it felt to you, you know. You're like, hey, I felt it was like a really good start or I was diving a lot this jump. Sometimes that's good to know because if you're intentionally diving a lot, you'll see a, ho- a totally different um, like arc than you would typically. It'd be similar to like having a strong tailwind. So it's good to know all the stuff in the future. But then, yes, you put it in a baseline and then you can load up a profile of different cliffs. You know, let's say you've been jumping half dome uh, and you can load up half dome and then put all the flights beside it and see like, Oh, I had, 
you know, I was never closer than 200 meters to the, to the ground on even my, even my like steepest flight. My best flight was like miles above everything. So then you can start putting in, yeah, are there jumps that you might want to do um, up next to it and just see how they all compare. And ideally you would have like a bunch of flights and even your worst flight is going to be high above the thing you want to jump next. And then you slowly just like go down. Are you writing the your observations on Micromet in a TXT file that uh, you're associating with that uh, fly site uh, data? Or how are you taking notes in a journal? How's this working for you? You could do that. I just do it in baseline. Um, in baseline. I mean, okay. that's... That, that thing is amazing. So you can upload the, the track and you can add notes to it. You can put the suit, you, uh, the suit, the conditions, what you thought. You can do it any kind of way that you want. But that to me, that's the easiest because it saves everything for you. And then when you pull it up, it, it'll have all of it. Um, you can like, when you save it to your computer, just the file, you could add it to the file name if you want, you know? Um, one of the reasons why I asked you to break down from A to Z your your flow um, was not because it's just an advanced question, but it also demonstrates how much goes into jumping a new cliff. And I think that when people are asking questions about like, hey, am I ready to do this? Or I'm ready to do that. They can listen to someone like you talking about all that they do to put into that and they can just realize I'm not ready for that. I don't have that workflow down. I don't even know what the fuck he's talking about. Um, uh, yeah. So like, yeah, I mean like calculating your, you know, your start arc and your pull altitude and all that stuff. Like, I mean, that's something fairly simple that people should be able to, or begin to wrap their heads around. But like, you know, the next step would be like hiking up to the exit point and, and measuring it with a laser. Right. And exactly. Yeah. That was my next thing is uh, I believe that even at the beginning, you should begin to do this, even if it's on a big cliff, you know, totally let's agree. say you're jumping in the valley, you, you take the laser up and begin to use it, you know, and start to build because in baseline, you can just, it takes one minute to, it links to your phone if you, and you can have it saved into your phone in like one minute. So you should do that for every single jump. That's, this is what I do. Every single exit I do, even if it's like a known exit that, uh, why would you laser it? Be because why, why wouldn't you, you know, because it's, then it's going to help you compare to like what other people told you the exit should be. And then in the future, like if you go to a new exit, it's going to help you make sense of that and you'll know how to do it easily. And then if you get numbers that don't make sense, you'll immediately know, you know, the first time you use a laser shouldn't be to open an exit you should have used it like a hundred times before that, you know? There's also some other things that go into it as well too, right? Like the kind of surface area that you're bouncing a laser off of. Is there a lot of humidity in the air? Uh, is there a lot of light available? Things like that, that if you're using your laser regularly, you're going to start to build a, an understanding of how it works. Uh, like Will, you're saying there is like, if you just go and it's like a do or die situation and you like peek over the edge and get some measurements for the first time ever. Yeah. You're, you yeah. Know. So give us some experience on using the laser. Like what are you shooting? How are you using it? So, as yeah. With the laser stuff, like it's been a lot of people use the uni eye 
that's what I call it. The, the one that a lot of people use it's, that's what I've always used. It does good for me, but it has a few things you have to watch out for. You know, if you hold down the button, it can reset the angle of the, the angle, uh, setting on it. Um, so you, you, you have to like, I used to take the battery out, but now I just stick a little piece of plastic in between the contacts of the battery when I'm not using it that way that can't happen. So anyone who has that laser, who has that issue, just do that, take out the battery or stick a little thing in between the, the contacts. So then when you get to the cliff, take it out. And I, the first thing I do is to check that the angle is close. So which, how, how can you do that on a cliff? You know, some people have the, the app on the phone that will tell you the angle and you can lay the, you can set the laser on top of the phone and then shoot at, shoot and see if it's, if it's close to what the phone says. That's one way. Something I'd like to do if I don't have that set up is like, just shoot like at the horizon. Typically it's going to be within one or two degrees of where you're actually at. And that will quickly tell you if it's, if it's off. And even if it's off by one, it's still going to be safe to use. You know, Hartman did a really good analysis of that. He, you can find it on Squirrel's page on the laser section, but it shows you exactly how much the profile would be different if your laser is off by one or by two. And it's not that much. It shouldn't make a difference of whether like you could, you could jump it. Um, besides that. So yeah, once I know that it's close, then yeah, I just take some measurements and I can load it into my phone and compare it to like other jumps, but something like, Hmm. Okay. I have a question for you guys. Like I've got some numbers here, you know? So like, it's typically like how you would build a profile. It's like the X measurement and the Y with the X being like the horizontal distance away and the Y being the vertical. So if you saw like a 20 by minus 65, you know, what would you think about that number? Or would you know, you know, like, are we talking in meters or feet? Meters. Yeah. That's what I okay. use. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and I'm terrible with meters. If, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm terrible with numbers. So, um, what I do is I have a, a file that just has all of the jumps that I've done. Um, and then I compare it to that. Uh, so I, I know my, uh, my dyslexia and, and the extent of it. So that rather than, rather than actually visualizing the number itself, I'm going, okay, I'm going to just look at my list. Um, and uh, associate it to the likeness of another jump that I've done in the past. Mm, yeah, that's a good way. And uh, to me, those numbers are almost meaningless since the last jump I did in a wingsuit was, uh, well, wingsuit base jump was 2015. And so uh, that sounds terrible. That sounds terrifying <laughs> to me. Mm. <laughs> what, what numbers did you say again? You said 20. Well, I'll just give you a couple 20 and then minus 65. 50 minus 120, uh, 120 minus 75 or no, sorry, flip that around. Anyway, my point is like, it's difficult to know just based on one number, like a lot of times. So when you're taking a profile, you need to shoot as many as you possibly can in, in a straight line out. And I sometimes take multiple ones based on the jump that I'm doing. I'll take one of like the best possible case, the worst case, or like 
if I'm going to have to maybe go this way, I'll take a profile for each one. So like when I'm opening an exit, I'll end up with like a multiple profiles, you know, possibilities and then build like a 3d picture in my head of like what the actual shape of the, of the jump looks like. But a place where fly site isn't going to be useful just so people know is like these ledges, like in the beginning, if you, let's say you have a, how about this one? 10 by like minus 50. Okay. You know, that's like basically a ledge that you're going to jump over. It's like, it's an athletic feat. You know, it's not like a um, flying thing, you know, all these ledges at the beginning is just something you're going to push past or jump over. So you need like a good push. And then as you get down closer to, to like 80, 90, hundred meters down, that's when like the flying aspect comes in. So you shouldn't be using these fly site files to say, oh, I can clear these ledges. No, that's something you should build based on experience. And throwing rocks, like like Chris mentioned in his episode, you can toss some stuff over the edge to kind of get an idea of what, of the path you'll take on these like beginning ledges. Now, throwing rocks is not useful at all for like to see the height of the cliffs, especially in like technical wingsuit jumping. You shouldn't be using it to be like, oh, five seconds, it's good to go. No, you should use a laser but it can be useful to see if you can clear like ledges in the beginning. Okay. So uh, packaging up some of this stuff, uh, first and foremost, uh, calibrating your laser and making sure that you don't miscalibrate it um, by leaving the battery in or uh, doing something else. Um, And I assume uh, that many of these lasers are like the one that I have. There's user manual to um, calibrate them. And uh, if you don't have uh, you know, the ability to use your phone on the exit point, then uh, the uh, horizon method isn't too bad. Um, Beyond that, you're using the laser to kind of map out uh, the uh, expected trajectory that you're going to take, like, you know, different locations, different numbers, not just like one rise over run, but like multiple rises over runs um, to see what kind of impact zones you're going to be facing in the first how many seconds of the flight and how, how long? Yeah. Give me, give me some of that. Well, something I'll add is like, it's, you can use some of this knowledge, like in a bad way, you know, okay. People use this stuff to justify making bad decisions sometimes. So that's important to know. And it's also like, you can have sometimes a little bit of information is more dangerous than not having any at all. So I think when you're first getting into doing this type of stuff, you should know that it's probably more dangerous for you than just not using one at all until you get a lot of experience. I'll give you a good example. I was on an exit point with some people and like the, the wind condition was not what we thought. We had like a pretty good tailwind, like five, sometimes 10 knots tailwind. And it's like a technical jump. And this guy was on the exit. Me like, no, this, I I have this number out like 400 by 400. It's like, Hey, that's the same as this jump that I do that I've done. But that number has, is not even what he should be looking at. He should be looking at the one below the cliff at like a hundred meters, because that's where it's going to make a difference. Like your start arc gets pushed way down when you have a tailwind tailwind and headwind. Well, like lift or like air coming up the wall makes a huge difference in a wingsuit based jump on technical jumps. You should never be jumping in tailwinds. Like just, just 
you know, ideally you would always have some lift just, um, but in this case, he, you know, he would have jumped just based on that one number because he was like, that's the same as this other jump. But it's like, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. It, yeah. Using the scientific tool to just justify your behavior is probably not the way to go more. Like I think what you're uh, telling us is that initially we should be using it to just understand what the exits that are, that have incredible amounts of margin look like. Um, and getting some uh, experience using the scientific tool in that environment so that eventually uh, we have some numbers to um, conceptualize how much risk we're assuming as we get to more dangerous and dangerous exits. Is that? Yeah, the question, the question of like how, how dangerous is it? You know, how much risk are you taking? like it depends completely on the individual as like jeff mentioned in his last podcast you know like he he was saying like first like maybe for him like a jump is totally fine and safe ish you know whereas someone with less experience is totally dangerous so you have to take that into account because like if you look at a an average like civilian, they look at skydiving like oh that's insane it's just because they don't really understand what's actually happening they don't understand the danger and you know, like that. So it's the same in like base jumping. A lot of slider down people will be like, Oh, that wingsuit stuff is totally dangerous. And, and I feel like they, sometimes they just don't totally get it, you know? And it's even the same in wingsuiting. Like a lot of times people come to me and they're like, Oh, that stuff you do is insane. And I'm like, it's not to me because I'm doing stuff that's like within my capabilities and and basically all the jumps I do are like within a window, you know, people say like, Oh, what's the line? I have like maybe 15 jumps that I've hiked down off of because the numbers and stuff didn't look good. Like I could have jumped it, but it was just too close, you know? So that's the line for me. You should never feel like you're having to pull up if you're wingsuit, wingsuiting a technical exit. Like this is kind of a thing that people can use. I think you shouldn't have to feel like you're pulling up to like, to, to not hit, you should always kind of feel like you're diving down to get to the, to the terrain, you know? Um, so there's, I've got a question because, uh, since we're talking about numbers and we're talking about measuring, uh, and now you're starting to bring up like, uh, your hard deck, for example, uh, just a way of saying it. Um, like for me, mine has fluctuated, you know, now being a dad and being less current, uh, it's changed a little bit, but like, I'm looking at my list right now and I'm thinking of this one here that's, uh, down 40 meters out eight meters down one thirteen, out 20 down one twenty four, out 26 meters. And this is like really like at the limit of what I think is possible for me, right? Not possible, but where the amount of stress that I want to endure to have fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, do you have a set number of like something that is like what you think is doable for you or, or within your limits or how do you come about the judgment that it takes to go, okay, wait, this is, this is a once and one and done, or do you do one and dones? And now I'm starting to ramble a little bit, but please expand on, on this. (laughs) That's That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Um, Uh, and I think the way you do it is good and it's always better to be conservative, you know? So if you, if you have just like a list and you're like, I'll never do anything that's 
beyond this, that's awesome. I don't have something like that. Like I mentioned earlier, I have like <laughs> maybe like 10 to 15 actual profiles with like a bunch of numbers on them that I could send you that each one of those was beyond my limit, you know, and that's something I do on a case by case basis. And it only comes with like a lot of experience, I think, and a lot of fly site data. And because like when I build these profiles, I'm taking like sometimes 20, 30 different points. And maybe it's, maybe it's just like one or two of those points that stand out to me. And it's never going to always be in the same place. You know, sometimes it's a ledge at 50 meters, you know, you, you mentioned one that like 40 by 10 or eight or something along those lines, 10 by 50 is like something you can jump past with not much difficulty. Something I'll add is like some things I follow is like, I I never want to be trying to push at 100% to try to get past a ledge. I'm almost never pushing like that hard. It's better to have a consistent exit than like the most powerful exit. And in my opinion, something else is like, I'll never jump something one and a one and done type exit. Like you asked, I would always, anything I jump, I would go back and do it again. And then like something else is I never jump something that needs good conditions to be successful. Like you wouldn't have to have lift for it to go. Cause like a lot of those ones I was talking about, yeah, I could have jumped them, you know, like I'm like, Oh, if I had good conditions, it's like, it goes, but no, I don't, I don't do that. So. I've got a question on margin. Um, you know, we've kind of circled around this a little bit and, um, I think uh, one of the things that's commonly done after someone like you opens an exit is for people to look at margin in like kind of a binary sense. Like it has margin versus like something that didn't go yet doesn't have margin. And uh, from our discussion, it sounds like you have a lot of data and knowledge to actually understand how much like margin you're working with. And then, uh, you know, make a decision on whether it's worth it to you or not. So my question is, like, can you take us through uh, understanding exactly how much margin you have and and what, like, pieces do you actually quantify uh, when you're you're making that judgment? Hmm, that's a good question. And I, it's, it's tough because it's, it's up to the individual. Um, so I don't think you can say this jump has like this level of margin because it just depends on who's jumping it. And this is like, a this is something I've thought about a lot because like about posting videos, because like, I know some of the jumps I do, people might want to go do them again. And a lot of times, like I, I have like a, a battle with myself. I'm like, Hey, should I post this video? Because I know someone might go do it and they might not be, they might not have like the level of margin that I had to do it, you know? And in some cases, a lot of times I don't post those videos. You know, I, I might post like one out of every 20 jumps that I, that I make if that, you know, that's like, and it, and that's always just, that's yeah. Anyway, but I can give maybe some tips to people like on an exit. Um, if they, if they feel like they're on like a technical exit for me, I can tell you what I feel, you know, like you guys talk a lot about fear, you know, like, do you feel it on the exit? Should you, you know, how do you deal with it and all this type of stuff? 
and for me, like, I don't feel any fear, like on a, on a wingsuit base jump. And I don't think that you should, um, because like that, that kind of implies that, um, you don't quite know the, the outcome, you know, or you think that there's something that, that will happen that you don't really have control of. And for me, I, it's, it's tough to say because I mean, a lot of people die wingsuit base jumping, you know, and there's the human element, you know, there's always that, that side of it and you can't take that out of it. Um, but you sh- like, for me, I visualize a lot, especially if it's on a new jump, like most of the jumps I do l- lately, like in the last two years, it's almost always like to open a new exit. So a lot of it's unknown. So I spend a lot of time like on the computer and on, like on the top of the exit and hiking up to the exit, like visualizing and, and knowing as much as I can about the jump so that when I'm actually on the exit and, and doing the jump, it's, it's, it's weird because like when I go until when I land, it's, it's like, it's already happened. You know, it feels like it's like, it's just kind of coming back together. Like, and I, I can't quite explain it, but so yeah, you shouldn't be like scared on the exit because that means you're like, you're not ready or you, you don't quite know all the things in play. I hear you. Yeah. You're basically saying that like the jump itself for you is a meeting of your own destiny that you've created by doing all of the homework. So like you've basically projected yourself in a survival, like surviving the jump. And now you're just making good on that. And that should be a scary proposition because you've done all of the, the lead up though. Like I've got a couple of follow-ups for you. Um, First, like I, I know that we talk about risk in a subjective way. Everyone has, you know, different motivations. Some people are willing to accept uh, more negative consequences than others. And so the risk profile changes and is very subjective versus like margin. I think we've talked about in more of a like objective quantifiable way. And while like you might have different margin than somebody else on a jump, I'm still curious to like dive into like how you construct margin for yourself. Like, you know, you've done all of this numbers, you've done all this research, like how do you know how close to your peak performance you are actually, you know, uh, trying to, to come and, and what, what are you actually measuring there? You know, what are the things that, um, you can say, uh, are crunched in your head when it comes to, um, building that margin? That's a good question. And that's something I'd like to talk about. I think so like wingsuit base jumping, someone could be like, Oh, I never want to, I would, the limit of like the cliff style jump is like three to 300 meters. And then I never want to be closer to like a hundred meters to the ground at any point, even with my worst like fly side tracks or whatever. And that's like a way that you can do it. Something that, a big thing is like for like technical wingsuit jumps, you need to know like in which on, on what kind of exit, like, okay, some exits let's, let's think about this. You could, could you slip and fall off of the exit while you're zipped up in your wingsuit and survive? Okay. 
And then the next level is like, okay, if I push off and have a bad exit, am I going to survive? And then beyond that is like, I need like a controlled exit to have a successful flight. Those are like the kind of three levels that I think about it. And if you, and if you want to put numbers on it, like maybe two, over 200 meters, like vertical cliff face is like the first one to where you could like trip and fall off the exit, zipped up in the wingsuit and pitch and be okay. You know? And then the next level down, maybe closer to 150 meters is like, oh, I could maybe have a bad exit scorpion or like go head high, head low, and then still like fly out of it. And then the next level down, like hundred meters and below, you need to have like a good consistent push and like a fly out. That's kind of how I think about them. And you need to know which kind of exit that you're on. That way, my biggest thing like is like falling off of an exit Um, because I'm almost always on a new exit and they don't always have like good edges and like, and, and it's a, it's one thing when someone's like, Oh, that's the exit. A million people have jumped it before and you just walk and do it when no one's done it. Like you have to be really careful of that. So that's like where I actually maybe have some fear sometimes, you know, like anxiety, just like being on the edge of just looking at exits. So I'll bring like gear with me to keep me safe in that, in that aspect. But once I know it's a good jump, for me, a lot of the jumps I do, yes, you have to have a consistent push. Like you can't be doing like an accidental front flip off of the exit. But for me, that's not like that big of a deal. If you can stand on a diving board, a five meter diving board at the pool and say, I'm going to dive off and go in head first and a dive and do that consistently. It's the, it's just like the same thing, you know? Yeah. And I have like hundreds of, of jumps doing that. So it's something you kind of build up to. And then in flight, it just comes down to like flying skills and making good choices and knowing the conditions, you know, I think okay, there's one so element just, there. Let me, let me just jump in. Cause there's one extra detail there. There's, and you guys brushed over it earlier too, about um, from one location to another and how the numbers will affect that too, is that as terrain comes closer up into your face, uh, your emotional reaction and uh, your your natural urge to flinch and, and pull away from that um, is also within that margin. So if, if you're someone, and, and th- I'm turning this into a question, um, is that as you said 100 meters, you never want to be closer to than 100 meters off of the terrain. I mean, I'm not, I, I have to push back on that a little bit because I'm looking at your videos and there's definitely some moments in some of your videos there where you're under 100 meters away from the ground. Uh, so I'm not quite following what you're saying there. Oh, when I was saying that, or I'm not, well, I was saying I like was someone could use that as an example, like, Someone could say, I never want to do this and have a, a limit. But when I was talking about the like 100 meters, 150, 200, I'm talking about just like the vertical face of the cliff of the exit you're jumping as a way, as like a guide to know uh, okay. Okay. what kind of situation you're in, how much danger, you know, like if, if it's 200 meters tall, I'm saying you could fall off of an emergency pitch and be okay. Like right. You could flip off, someone pushed you off the exit and you could survive. And, and then the 100 meters is like the cliff face. Like a lot of the jumps in the U.S., they're hundred meters and less. And then like whatever slope after that. Yeah. You know? Okay. Does, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
So I'm still, uh, I, I got one more dig on this particular avenue and then I've got, uh, a, you know, another question that's kind of tangent, but like what I really want to know here, Will, is do you actually calculate how slow or how bad you can be on a particular exit? I mean, like you've broken it down now into like not a binary sense of margin, but, you know, a trinary sense of, of margin. Like, you know, you've got, you know, the, uh, I can slip off, I can I react poorly, or I need to be on my shit. Um, but is there also like in the back of your head or on paper or somewhere, uh, a calculation of uh, how much you have to be on your shit? Like, you know, what, uh, how far from peak performance uh, you can be and still make it out of it? Do you have like a specific calculation for that? Or um, is it just the, the more trinary thing that you've uh, just described? Um, I don't know if I have like a specific calculation that I do, but obviously when I'm, when I'm like going to those jumps that I've hiked down off of, that's like a, a calculation that I've made. And I'm like, no, this is too close to like my limit. And that's like something you could do with like fly site files initially for at least like the beginning of the jump. Um, and for me, like I could, I could lay out 200 of my jumps and they, yeah, every single one that, of them would be above the. That's exactly yeah, what I'm saying. Right. So if you've done that calculation, then like, what is your margin? What's the Will Mitchell margin? You know, when you say I'm too close to uh, pre-performance, what does that look like for you? What margins are you playing with? What are those numbers? When you say performance, what do you mean in terms of like, or uh, performance or uh, or profile, either one? Like, um, you know, you look at a jump and you go, "That's that's too close to my limit," right? Now, typically, that I'm, would mean like that would mean like I'm diving off and feeling like I'm having to pull up to to, to not hit the ground. So yeah. almost on almost all these jumps, I do like what people think are technical jumps. I could for me, I could have like not a perfect push, not the strongest push it doesn't even have to be like on an angle but you know within a window of what i know i can do consistently and then once i'm flying i'm pushing down you know um so i don't know if that answers the question but almost i'm I'm still kind (laughs) of looking for like a you know if the exit requires me to be uh you know let's say, or the flight requires me to be at a two to one, then my margin for error, I I add in like, you know, two tenths of a, of a, like two tenths of the, like I can be at 2.2 or something like this. Or, you know, if uh, I'm required to be uh, flying, you know, if I can fly uh, after, um, you know, a hundred meters of, of, uh, of vertical, you know, then like, I'm going to build in X amount, uh, on top of that to like, what is the, you know, Will Mitchell margin is, is really what I'm getting at. Yeah. I know that you do do this, but I'm just kind of curious what the, what those numbers look like. Well, I think one of the things you mentioned is like trying to make a specific glide to, and that's not something that I do is like, okay, it's just not the kind of jumps that we have in the U S or not something that I've come to. I think that's something you see in Europe a lot on like the big jumps. And that's what I'll get people sometimes. They try to make a specific glide. Um, And a lot of times it's just across like a point that they've done a lot of times before. And then the conditions change and that, you know, that's happened a lot. 
And lately it's a lot of like ex- inexperienced people going out with like a mindset of like, I want to do this line and, and cross this point because that's what they've seen. And then they try like first jump, go out and attempt it. And they just don't have any idea that they're flying too slow and they can't make it for me. Like I have a good sense of how I'm flying in, in the air to know my speed, my glide, what, where I can go, you know, but I, and so, but there's never jumps where I like exit, have to fly like a mile to, to go over something. That's just not something that I've done. So in my case, it's typically in the beginning of the jump and, and specifically there could be like ledges. Let's say like that number I gave you earlier, there's a 20 by 60. And to me, that's like, that's just too close because that's like meaning you have to have a really good push. And and even then you're just like, not going to, you're going to be close to it, you know? But then in flight, I'm, I'm like pretty, I like, I'm intuitive. Like I use these tools, but I feel like you shouldn't like what Chris was saying in his episode, you should use these tools to, to develop an intuitive sense of, of how, what you're doing when, while you're doing it that way in a flight, you should immediately, you should always know like, Oh, I'm flying too slow or like I'm flying super fast. I have tons of speed and whatever, you know? Yeah. What, when you said the, um, when you said you were, never wanting to pull up what I heard was that you're constantly building speed on these small jumps. Is that, is that what it feels like to you is that you're constantly accelerating? Like after you jump, you're accelerating, 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 accelerating flare pull up to a point. I mean, it depends on the slope that you're flying down to. I'm talking about like in the first, let's say eight seconds of the flight, you should, you should never get the feeling like, Oh, I need to be pulling up because the the ground is coming up to me right. past that. You know, at some point, yes, you hit like whatever speed is determined by the slope of what you're flying on. So you, you're not always building speed. Maybe it, um, not on the jumps that I do, but you should, but you should always. So the, that's the thing too, is like in Chris's episode, he was talking about the tra- trajectory of the flight versus like your body position. Um, and for me, that makes a lot of sense if you're, if you're doing like performance flying and if you have a lot of altitude, but when you get to technical, like wingsuit jumping, you need to be able to fly that wingsuit at a hundred percent or close to it efficiency. That's huge. I, w- I want to say that. And what I see a lot is like a lot of people can fly at 85 or 90%. Like that's easy to get to those last 10% is like, it, it's the hardest, you know, to get, but you need to be able to, to access it. That's the skill um, gap that's bridged with training. Yeah. Training yeah. effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Or and we I could do an entire episode on training effectively uh, to get yeah. that last 10%. And maybe we need to bring him back on to, to do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've got a lot of, go ahead. Yeah, I've got another uh, question based on something that you just said. Um, it's uh, It's been a hot button topic for us, fear, on the podcast. And mm-hmm. uh, you uh, are in stark contrast with somebody that I've heard that's notable in our community. I'm going to bring it up and uh, ask you what you think about it. You earlier just said that uh, you don't think that fear is appropriate on the exit point. You should not feel it. Now, yeah, go ahead. No. Yeah. Go ahead with your question. Okay. Um, now, uh, 
I've also heard on outside podcast, Jeb Corliss, one of the people that has um, inspired many people to enter the sport, uh, that he is afraid on every single exit point. Now, Hmm. those two opinions are in stark contrast, man. What do you make of, of that? What do I make of that? Well, uh, maybe we have different definitions of, of the, of the word, you know? Okay. So let's start there. What do you define fear to be? Well, it's funny. I I looked it up when you guys kept talking about it on on a lot of the episodes. Um, and it's like, yeah, it's an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that like something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or it's a threat, you know? We know that base jumping is dangerous. All of us accept that when we, when we do it, you know? So that's like, but the, the interesting point is like, it's likely to cause pain. Um, and that to me is like kind of the thing. I, I don't think when I jump that I'm likely to be inflicted with a lot of pain or even or die, anything like that. You know, I don't think any negative outcome is, is going to happen, you know? Um, and I don't think it's a threat to me. Like, n- <laughs> nothing like a tree is not going to jump up and 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 hit me you know i'm the pilot you know and now like there's conditions with the wind and stuff that can have an effect but that's something you need to take into account you know like that's the okay. thing about base jumping that i like is like when you you're the only one that's making decisions and it's like all it's only up to you now sometimes there's some things that you, you maybe didn't think about didn't know about but you have to like take that into account as well and leave yourself like a little bit of that, of that. Now, when he's talking about, he feels it, I don't know, man. I mean, he's, he sells that. I think like part of it is about publicity. Maybe, maybe he does actually feel that, you know, and I'm not taking away from anybody. Like you should feel what you feel, you know, like, yeah. And, and I think that's only for me. That's just to me when I said like, you shouldn't feel it. I think new jumpers definitely, they're just going to feel it because they haven't done it, you know? And they don't have the experience or the knowledge to know the out, like the outcome. Once you've done 300 base jumps at the bridge, you're going to be like, oh, this is chill. But your first jump, you're like, oh man, what if like it doesn't open? Then you, yeah, you'll feel fear and that's part of it. Well, I'm certainly not saying that like, uh, or I'm certainly not proposing that we be resistant to our emotions. Certainly not. And I think if you listen to the Brett Kistler episode, we talk about that, like being honest with what we're feeling on the exit point. Though... Uh, the step that Jeb takes is say is to say that I feel afraid before every jump, meaning that like he feels that emotion and then decides to jump, which is contrary to something that I've said to people in the past. Like when I become became an experienced jumper, like they they asked like, hey, do you feel you know afraid before you jump? And I said no, like I feel afraid before I walk down. And so I guess my my next question to you is like. Let's say that you meet a jumper, like you, you know, you're opening an exit point. Maybe you jump another wingsuit exit point that's, you know, uh, somewhat risky, uh, and you're feeling no fear at all, right? And this person next to you is noticeably afraid. Uh, do you question that at all? Do you take any action at all? Do you, what is what does that interaction look like at the exit point? <laughs> Have you been in that uh... spot? I have, yeah, not not too long ago, actually. Well, tell but, us and, about it, man. I'm I'm curious. 
the place I'm at now, I think it's important to set a good example. And, and in that case, I would like these days, like I'll hike down with someone if they're not feeling it, even though I would have jumped. And then that, and in some cases, like if it's like questionable, the conditions or if I, any kind of case like that, I'll hike down first or like, I'll make the point, like, I'm not going to jump just to, just because I know that if I go first, people are just going to follow me or anyone, not just me. I see that all the time in base jumping. Like once the first person goes, it's just, that's it. So that now I make a point to be like, I, I'm not feeling it. I'm going to, I'm going to hike down or if anybody wants to come, that's cool. Now, if everyone's like, no, we're good. Well, I'll jump. And then if they all go, then yeah, I'll jump too. And that's, uh, I want to, I wouldn't have always been like that, you know? Uh, but I think a lot of times what people fear is maybe like anxiety on the exit, you know, maybe they're just like nervous. I don't know if it's exactly fear all the time and some anxiety is like, yeah, not, not bad. Um, but yeah, as you say, you, you should listen to what you feel and that's like up to the individual. So I guess what I'm hearing from you is that you don't just let it go. You don't just like look at somebody that's like, you know, apprehensive and shaking over there, like terrified with fear and go like, all right, well, well, here we go. (laughs) Well, it's unlikely that I would be jumping with them, you know, because, because not because just because most of the jumping I do, like I said, is opening new exits and it's almost always by myself, like 98% of the jumps I've done lately. Um, mostly because I don't want to be in that situation, you know, because I would feel like a little bit of, I would feel like it's, I have to do something, you know, and I know if I go up solo that I'm likely to have a successful and good jump, you know, bringing other people with me. A lot of times it's like a less likelihood that we'll have a jump, you know? So I just go solo. I like jumping solo. Brett, Brett, uh, anyway, defined that pretty well. Uh, we were talking about that and, uh, he said that I liked a low signal to, uh, to, uh, information, ratio and uh, i think that's kind of what you're saying as well is that you don't want the extra signal of somebody who's apprehensive while you're uh you're doing your thing Um, yeah low noise was how he put it too just i just don't want to put someone in the i don't want to put someone in a situation where they're like in above their head kind of and then like we get to an exit and like i know it's good but they don't feel it and then we both have to hike down or right. I jump and then feel like an asshole that they have to hike down solo or I jump and then they end up jumping in the end just because I jumped. So I don't want to be put in the, in that position to begin with, you know, that's also something really important for a lot of people to hear too, I think is that like, we're going to the exit together and we're going back to the car one way or the other together that like, we're, you know, when we go to do these things together, it's like, we got to be doing it together. And, uh, yeah, I really respect that. Uh, someone messaged me the other day uh, in talking about one of our episodes, and he mentioned that he had to walk down, and uh, his mentor said it was fine for him to jump, so he jumped, and then the dude walked down, and it was like, I wasn't there, and I can't really judge 100%, but I was like, man, that mentor could have been a lot better if he had been <laughs> like, you know, hey, okay, we got this, like, quartering tailwind and this is clearly not good for somebody who's never jumped here before like why don't we just like be bros and like you know handle this mission together 
again, I wasn't there. I can't judge hundred percent, but like just from the details I received, like your approach right there is, uh, it's definitely one that I respect. Yeah. Is, is base jumping a team sport for you? Well, I don't think it's a sport to begin with. Okay. A uh, team activity. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But most, uh, most of the time it's not a sport, you know, I'd say it's an activity, maybe like yeah. a hobby. Uh, well, when you go it, out with people, do you consider it like a team activity or do you absolutely, still? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, up to a point. Um, <laughs> once you get to the edge and you jump off, then it's just you, you know? And I think that's kind of where I draw the line maybe. And then obviously if there's other people in the air with you, it's kind of a, a, you know, it's a team thing as well. But like, if we're all hiking up to an exit together, for sure. Like, yeah, it's a, it's a team thing. But once like, if I'm doing a solo, once I go, that's, that's just me. I like that. You, you said that you're not feeling a lot of fear and that it may be anxiety. Um, what, what do you fear? Um, fall like falling off of a, an exit without not jumping or like accidentally falling, you know? Uh, yeah, it's, I've thought about it some, you know, what, what would my BFL thing be? And I hope it wouldn't be one like, oh, he was like trying to fly this thing and just in, like flew into a tree or whatever. It's, I would say it's likely going to be like, oh yeah, he fell off some exit he was looking at doing or got caught in bad conditions and like died in the mountain or something. I don't know, but maybe attention not. And then pounding in, who knows? But yeah, but I th- this is something too, though, is like, I, I don't think it's really, at least for me, I don't have like a fear of death because I, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, I think, so I had an experience where I had a 180 cliff strike, like was knocked out. And then I kind of woke up at the bottom of the cliff and was like in and out. And then I woke up a few days later in the hospital, you know, and I was, I had like a life flight and they say I, I could have died in that case. And if I, if I did, then that, that experience is what made me feel like, oh, it's actually not a big deal. It's, it's really easy to die. And for me, it wasn't painful at all. And I think that's the case for a lot of people that die base jumping, you know, it's pretty quick and painless. And then it's just nothing, you know, it's like, going. it's like, why should you be, why should you be afraid of, of death? You know, it's, it's probably a lot like it was before you were born. You know, do you remember that? No, I do not. Yeah. I mean, that was a long time and it's probably the same after. So it's just, you can't fear like a non-experience, you know, it's just like, you just go to sleep forever. It's, it's definitely a lot harder for like the, the, the people that you're with, the friends and family and the people on the scene, that's who it's going to affect. And I, I don't want that to happen. You know, that would, that would suck. That's interesting because what you said is uh, almost identical to the fears that I have uh, uh, slipping on an exit and then just some gross error, you know, like maybe some like misrigging or, and then a tension knot of some sort that like has me spiraling into a, a, you know, and splatters into the rocks. That's my primary fear. And then what I leave behind and uh, 
So that's, that's really interesting. Cause like, uh, I think that I was a bit at odds with some of the other conversations that we've had around fear because it was laid in, um, in a way that made me feel like, okay, well, or was presented in a way that that was had to do with, uh, your currency, um, and being complacent. And, uh, that's not how I feel personally. And, uh, it's nice to hear that, you know, other people adding to the conversation because I know that that's not, that's the case for a lot of people. Well, Will, uh, we're getting pretty close to time. And uh, as we wrap up, you know, you've given us a lot to think about both in your scientific approach and also uh, in your approach to wingsuiting. And I'm kind of curious to, you know, close out on any uh, advice, any uh, words of wisdom that you have to share to anyone that's uh, trying to, you know, attack the sport with the same curiosity uh, that you do. Um, yeah, I think we've, we've touched on a lot of good points, but I would say, yeah, if anyone has any questions, just, uh, yeah, send them my way. I'm always happy to, to help. You know, I like when people do that, you know, uh, or any experienced jumper, you know, I, like send them out to people that, that have been doing this a while. And beyond that, like at the beginning, just know that there's a lot of stuff that you don't know yet. So like try to be conservative and just survive like the first three or four years of your base jumping career. That should be like your main goal because at that point you'll look back and be like, Oh wow, I'm, you know, I didn't know this and this and this now I do. So, yeah. All right. So it's, you don't know what you don't know and take it easy, take it slow. Well, you're definitely helping. And all that we talked about at the the beginning of the episode with the, gathering all this research we really appreciate your work and we're really hoping that you'll come back when you've got more of this to present and uh, thanks so much for sitting down and having this chat with us yeah thank you guys i really enjoy the podcast and i get a lot out of it too so thank you Thanks for joining us for this episode. If you have any comments on what you've heard in this show or any topic suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound engineer and co-producer for helping us with this project. Catch you next time and see you on the exit point.